listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Glad you're here, guys. We're going to hit the ground running. We're in our third week of John 6. And uh, we've been through a lot has happened in John, but y'all, especially a lot is happening in chapter 6. We are about to get dropped into the middle of a tornado. A lot is going on. And so I thought maybe it'd be helpful to get our bearings a little bit. So we're going to review not just John 6, we're going to review where we've been in John, the book of John so far. And so that when we hit this tornado, we kind of know a little bit what's around us and what the lay of the land is a little bit. And there's a lot going on. And so it helped me. I can be kind of visual. It helped me to kind of write it out. Um, And so I got out my iPad the other day, and I kind of wrote this out to share with you. Now, a little caveat, I have terrible handwriting on regular paper. Electronic paper, that's like a whole nother level. And so there's going to be some of this you can't read, uh, but, you know, read your Bible, it'll tell you. And you poke your friend next to you, and, you know, why is he talking about barns? No, it's born, okay? You may have to do some of that. So between the Bible, your neighbors, we can all figure out what I'm saying up there. But if you're, especially for those of you who are visual, I think this will help to see the layout of what's going on here. So let's start here. The purpose of the book of John. He tells us, it's one of the few books that the author just comes out and says, this is why I'm writing what I'm writing. It's from John 20, 31. He says, but these are written so that you may believe, believe what? That Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and then what happens? That by believing, you may have life in His name. That's everything that's going on here in the book of John. And so you can see that. And so y'all, you're going to be reading along in the book of John, and sometimes this is going to be obvious. This is what's going on here. You're going to be reading along sometimes, and you're going to think, what is he talking about? What is going on? Well, this is what he's talking about, always. You can always go back to this. This is what's going on here. This is why he tells where he is. This is why he puts things in certain areas and places in the Bible. This is why the verses we're going to be reading today are there, so that we can believe in Jesus and receive life. And so what he's been doing so far in the first six chapters, John has kind of been illustrating different ways this looks. And so chapter three, you may remember Nicodemus comes to him and Jesus starts talking about being born again. Most famous passage in the whole Bible, John 3, 16 right? Jesus came, God sent his son, so we believe in him and have what? Life, eternal life, right? And so in chapter three, the picture there is being born again. And so just like you go from not being alive and you're born and now you're alive, that's the picture, having life in him, being born again. Then went to chapter four. You may remember the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four, okay? He has this conversation with her. And the picture there is life is Water. What kind of water does he say? Living water. He says, when you believe in him, springs of living water overflow to eternal life. And so the picture John gives us there of believing is drinking, taking a big drink of who Jesus is and bringing him into the deepest parts of us. We've been in John 6. And here, John 6, the picture is bread. The picture of believing is eating, ingesting bringing Jesus in to the deepest parts of you. He says, what happens when you do that? You have life. He says, I'm the bread of life. So when you believe me, when you ingest me, just as 
When we eat real food, it's ingested and then digested, breaks up inside of us. It gives us energy. We're not just a sack of lifeless skin and bones. We have energy. That's the picture so far in John 6. And so, y'all, while we, you know, often treat this as, well, let me say this first. He, here's something that John has been saying kind of here and there, but he's really going to camp out today, is this. That this whole process of belief and all the ways it looks, this process is spirit-empowered. This is a work, this is something the Holy Spirit does inside of you. And so in chapter 3, you may remember Nicodemus. He's the good Pharisee. He's keeping all the rules. He's trying his best. He's doing everything he can. But God says, no, 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 this is spirit and power. So he says this to Nicodemus. He says, you're doing all of this in the flesh, and you're doing a lot, a lot of things. But guess what? Flesh is flesh. It's all fresh. It's all flesh. It's just you and your power and your ability. So what does he tell Nicodemus? You have to be born again of the Spirit. It's got to be Spirit-empowered. It doesn't matter how much your flesh does. It's not from the Spirit. Chapter 4, he's talking about living water. And so the woman asked him, this sounds great. Where do I get this living water? What does he tell her? Hey, if you just knew who I was, you would just ask me and I would give it to you. It's a gift. And so she even talks about, well, wait a minute. You know, some people say we have to go here on this mountain and worship in this way. Other people say we got to go out here on this mountain and worship this way. And what does Jesus, how does he respond to her? He says, the time is coming and is now here where you worship how? In spirit and in truth. He's saying it's no longer about where you go and what you do. It's about what is done in you. It is about what is done to you. It is about what I give you. Then John 6. The crowd says, okay, this, this living bread sounds great. We don't ever have to be hungry again. It sounds wonderful. What do we do? What do we do to get the bread? And what, and what does he say? He says, you don't do anything. You believe. You believe in me, and I give it to you, and I do all of the work. It's given. And so, you know, this whole process, while usually, and rightfully so, we treat this as great news, as good news. And that's, that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And it is. And usually when we're preaching it, when we're studying it and doing Bible studies and talking about it, reading about it, man, there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of celebration for God's provision, and rightfully so. Here's what we're going to find out there this morning. We're going to find out that this message is offensive. We're going to find out that this message is actually really, really difficult. In fact, y'all, I get the privilege of preaching something to you that when Jesus said it, he went from 12,000 followers to about 12. When Jesus preached this message, thousands said, we're out. We're not down with this. Forget this. So, you know, this week I thought about, thought about the book. You may have heard of the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Today, Jesus is writing the book, How to Lose Friends and Offend People. It is a course on how to do exactly that. So what about this process could possibly be offensive? Really two things. Two things he's going to outline. I've highlighted them here. The first thing is who he is. What you need to believe about Jesus. He says really two things throughout the book so far. Number one, I'm God. From the very beginning, chapter one, he says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And he created everything. And he said it over and over. In fact, chapter 5, he, 
They get mad at him for healing on the Sabbath. He said, that's nothing. It's not that I heal on the Sabbath. It's that I am God over the Sabbath. Over and over again, that just fires them up. Why? Because if he is God, I'm not. If he is God, then I have to submit to him, not him to me. That was offensive to them. The second thing he says about himself is that he is the sacrificial lamb. And so you may remember chapter 2, John the Baptist sees him coming, points to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was going to have to be the perfect sacrifice that died to forgive us of our sins. Well, what's offensive about that? What means I need saving? It necessarily means that something is wrong with me. It also means there's a whole host of things that they maybe hoped he was that he is not. They had to lose that hope. That means he is not just a teacher or just a self-help guru, just there to kind of help them tweak a few things and become that little bit better version of self that's been in their head for a while that has maybe been, uh, they haven't quite been able to reach. It's not who he is. It means he's not just a politician. You know, just there to accomplish their agenda, their platform, reform society in a few ways. It means he's not. And guys, you can just fill in the blank. Just fill in the blank. They all had these expectations, these hopes of who they thought Jesus was going to be that had to necessarily be disappointed. It's the same way for us. If you're going to believe in him, there's some expectations of him you have to to let go, and that can be offensive sometimes. And here's the last thing that was really offended. It's this whole spirit-empowered part. It's the fact that he kept saying, the spirit helps you do this. It's the spirit that does this, not you. Because, think about this, this is why this is offensive. If he accomplishes it, then I don't. He's saying not only to act... Not only do I have to die for your sins, I have to empower you to believe that I did. Here's why this is difficult. It's because each and every one of us has inside of us a little me monster that the Bible calls the flesh. It's our natural, fallen, sin-loving self. And you know what the flesh wants? It wants it to be all about me. Let me earn it. Let me be important. Let me be worthy. Let me get what I want. And when Jesus comes along and says, you know what? It's not about you even a little bit. That me monster doesn't like that. That me monster tends to get kind of riled up, get angry, start kicking and screaming, and it will get offended. You know, Jesus back to thousand. The question in the story is not, will you be offended? Everyone does. Even those who stay say, man, this is really hard. This is offensive. I don't quite know what to do with this. I wish Jesus wouldn't talk like that. And it's the same for, I'm convinced it is the same for you and me. If we follow Jesus long enough, at some point our flesh, our ego, our me monster is going to lash out. It's not a question of if, but when. And so that makes the real question, when that happens, Will you keep believing in him for life? Go back to the first thing we wrote on the board. That's the purpose of all of this. Will you believe in him and receive life? 
story today? Listen, thousands didn't. Thousands said, we will not, no longer believe in him for life, but a few did. And let's find out why. Let's read. John chapter 6, verse 60 through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. What I'm most interested in this morning, and as I've studied this week, is, you know, we got two groups, some, a big group that left, a small group that stayed. Why? What made some leave in droves? And what made a few stay? And can we learn anything from them? this morning. Let's talk about those who left first, verse 60. They kind of say in unison, this is a hard saying. This is hard. The word there is sclerose, which means dry, hard, rough. And so it was used figuratively for anything or anyone who was seen to be unyielding, unwilling to give. It created great discomfort. And so People could be called this, any kind of distressing news or challenging concepts would be called hard in this way. But listen, they weren't, they weren't hard to understand. That's not what's in view here. They're not confused. They're not walking around being like, what's he talking about? There's a clarity of what he is saying. It's not hard to understand. It is hard to accept. That's what's in view here. And so to, to keep the food metaphor going, they're choking on what he's saying. It is hard to swallow what it is that he is telling them. And in verse 60, the whole crowd agrees. They say, they kind of have this rhetorical question. Who on earth can listen to this? Who can accept this? And the answer in their mind is nobody. That's how hard this is. So verse 61, grumbling, and Jesus just looks at them and says, does this offend you? Do you take offense at this? The word there is scandalizo. You hearing that word scandal? Is this a scandal for you? The word, it's the same word that Paul would use when he says the cross is a stumbling block to some. He's saying, is this tripping you up? Is this calling you to stumble and fall on your face? Answer, yes. Yes, it is. It's worth asking, why is this so rough for them? Why is this so hard to accept for them? You know, D.A. Carson is the, he's kind of the go-to commentator Uh, for much of the book of John. He's the guy that all the other commentators quote. He pointed out three things that offended the crowd here. First is this. Y'all, they were only interested in the benefits of Jesus. They were blessing chasing. If 
following him for what he could do for them. So in the moment right now, it's food, it's miracles, it's all different kinds of provisions. In the near future, that was going to be political. They were going to kick the Romans out. He was going to kick their oppressors out, and that's why they're following him around. But they were following him, right? They're buying in, they're believing in his miracles, they're cheering him on, they're calling him the Messiah until he stops performing for them. And then they're offended. And they say, hold, hold, hold on, Jesus. We're here for what you can do for us, not for you to tell us what to do. How about you stay in your lane a little bit? And he, he refuses. Second, they're offended that they can't control him. See, they kind of thought this was an election. You know, us, the crowd, we've nominated you, we elect you, and now you do what we want you to do. Isn't that how it works? You know, we, we just had an election around here. And so imagine you, you had this candidate that you really loved. And so you decided you were going to go all over the country campaigning for this candidate. You left your family for a while, you left your job for a while, and you go to the rallies and you knock on doors and phone calls and cheer them on, the whole thing. And man, would you believe that they win? All right. Well, what happens next? What's that candidate supposed to do now? They're supposed to do all the things that you wanted them to do. Right? That's why the saying goes, he who chooses the king controls the king. And Jesus refused to be controlled. And that was hard for them. Finally, the last reason is simply he claimed to be God. They didn't sign up for that. They signed up for an earthly Messiah who was just a little bit better version of themselves. That's what they signed up for. And this guy going around talking about being God, that was offensive. And here's the deal, guys. Jesus is not going to let up on that. In fact, in the coming verses, he is going to crank the volume on that one. So he says in verse 62, listen, you think this is offensive? You think this is hard? What are you going to do when you see the Son of Man ascending? That Son of Man, that's a reference to Daniel 7. You can go read it. Daniel 7, there's the Son of Man, and he is the one who is worthy, all-powerful, given all authority. He's given an everlasting dominion and glory over all kingdoms. It says that every person, all people, all nations, all languages will serve the Son of Man. And Jesus is saying, you're looking at him. That's me. I am completely supreme, have all sovereignty, all authority, not just over this little kingdom right here and the argument and the fight you have going on with the Romans. All kingdoms, all people are here to submit to me. And that's immediately what they would have known when he called himself the Son of Man. And he tells them, okay, this Son of Man, this one who's all-powerful, has all authority, he's going to ascend, not up for the first time, but what does he say? To where I was before. What do you mean where you were before? Well, he's saying, guys, I've existed for all eternity with the Father. I'm just visiting here. This is where y'all are from. This is not where I'm from. And so he's, he's doing two things. He's affirming his eternal preexistence as God, and he is changing the focus of his work from what they thought it was going to be. You can imagine, you know, you're picturing God to kind of, Jesus kind of be this politician. All right, let's, let's kick the Romans out. Let's make our own empire. Let's do this thing. And then you see him ascend. Whoa, 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 where are you going? No, 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 we're not done. You come back. So him ascending is, for them, it would be the final goodbye to this earthly Messiah that they wanted him to be. 
all the things that that me monster in them wanted God to do for them. That's what Jesus is doing. By claiming his authority, by redirecting the focus of his work, he is launching an all-out attack on the me monster. So then in verse 63, he, he returns to the same theme we've seen over and over and over again. My words are life, is what he says. That's why I'm here, to offer you life. But I have to give that life through the Holy Spirit. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. And y'all, he says a thing that I really don't like. Not even a little bit. He says, the flesh is no help at all. To which I want to say like, how about a little bit? I mean, it's, I mean, it's like this Grand Canyon between you and me, but like, take a step. I mean, I love my family for you. I'm following you, and we don't know where miss, our meal is going to come from. And all these people, they want to kill you, but I'm leading the pepper alley for you. Have you seen Johnny over here, what a scumbag he is? I mean, my, surely my flesh is like better than his flesh. And Jesus will have none of it, guys. None of it. No help at all. I studied the Greek of what that means. You know what it means? No help at all. That's like my last grasp of hope, you know? No, that's what it means. I find myself wanting credit, but instead all we get is this sharp, unrelenting, intense insistence on Jesus' authority and his superiority. So if I was going to sum up, I think what Jesus is trying to say here, it's this. Listen, gang, God does way more than you think, and you do way less than you think. Does that offend you? Well, for thousands that day, the answer was absolutely yes. And here's here's what I think the core offense is. Beneath what's lying under the surface of those other three reasons, the core offense is that Jesus demands that we utterly depend on him. Again, they believed Jesus was the Messiah. They believed he could do miracles. They believed he was king of Israel. But when he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's saying, you're not good enough. I'm going to have to die for you. Everything, everything is going to have to be by grace, unearned. Your own goodness isn't enough. God doesn't owe you anything for your efforts. You thought all your good deeds were righteousness? Wrong. They were just filthy rags. Your flesh is no help at all. (laughs) I got to tell you, if that message was offensive then, I think even more so today. You have to pick one reason, the reason most people choke on Christianity. The reason most people find it hard is because it says unequivocally, you are a sinner. You fall short of the law of God. You fail to love God. You fail to love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, Jesus Christ has to die so you can be forgiven. And that's the only way. And he's the only way. He does way more than you think, and you do way less than you think. And so many left, thousands, in droves, left on that day, no longer willing to do what John is calling us to do, believe in him for eternal life. But a few stayed. Let's, let's talk about those who remain. Peter speaks for them here. You read closely what he says. It, it's amazing. He, he follows almost exactly this summary, this purpose of John. First, he asks this question. To whom shall we go? 
So I, I think this response, in a strange way, it's beautiful. It's, it is far from ideal, okay? So husbands, let me invite you. If your wife ever asks you, hey, are you going to leave me? Don't say, well, where else am I going to go? Okay, it's not, don't do that. Oh, I'm getting fat and bald. Where, what else? Am, you know, nobody else will take me. Don't do it. So it's far from ideal, right? But I think in there is some honesty and some dependence on Jesus. You know, think about that statement. It's not that they didn't think it was a hard teaching. It's not that they weren't choking on it a little bit. In fact, it kind of reads as if they had explored their options. They had huddled up and talked about, we got any any other options here? No? Okay. It is a bankrupt statement. It is a statement of weakness. It is a statement of a lack of options. I'm out of resources. And y'all, there's not many places in our life where we're out of options, is there? Y'all, we live in White House, Texas, and we got to pick a four Mexican restaurants, okay? Which means after church, you can go and ask your, your family can talk, hey, where do you want to go eat? Somebody can say Mexican. And then if there's four people in your family, you can all disagree still on where you're going to go. Remember growing up, my mama lived in a town called Spring Hill, Louisiana. There was one Mexican restaurant, because, and that was the restaurant. There were no others. And so after church, no one asked, hey, where, where, where are we going to go eat? What restaurant are we going to go to? You're at options. You got one option. That's all you got. And Peter's saying, well, this, is, this is confusing. This is hard, but I know this much. I only have one option for where to find life. There's only one game in town for that. You know, you can almost picture him going back through his past, maybe if he lived today and thinking, where else am I going to go? Thinking through all the things that maybe he's tried. Go, go back to drinking or, or something that just numbs the pain that maybe promises a little life but eventually fails. Go back to the stuff, to the materialism, to the creature comforts that promise to give me life but that fa- have failed me. Go back to myself, what everyone tells you, look inside yourself. That's what all the Disney movies say. Am I going to go back to that? Go back to all the salesmen on TV and on Facebook that promised me, if you just had this, just buy this, then you'll have life, then you'll be happy. I'm just going to go to another relationship. I wrecked another one. And so just, but no, this, no, the next relationship, that'll have life. You can almost hear him processing all those places he's been before and saying, no, no, no. All those things have promised life, but only you've delivered, Jesus. So I'm here. And he, what follows is two confessions about who Jesus is. And what's great about this is they both affirm exactly what Jesus has been saying about himself. He says in verse 68, you have the words of eternal life. Life is found with you. And this is almost exactly what Jesus had said about himself over and over and over again throughout chapter 6. And then in verse 69, he says, you are the Holy One of God. Remember, talking about being the Son of Man, his ascension, what is he emphasizing? His supremacy, his authority as God the Creator. Well, anyone who'd spent five seconds in the Old Testament, every Jew of the day would have known from the time they could walk and talk, only one person can be called holy, and that's God Himself. And so 
He's asserting his authority in a way every Jew around there would have known what he is saying. Just take one book of the Old Testament. Uh, you can go to any of them, but let's just take one. The book of Isaiah. You may remember the book of Isaiah. He, he has this vision. He sees these angels around the throne. And what are they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. And what's his response? Woe is me, for I am ruined. Why? Because I'm not. I am not holy. No man is holy. Only God is holy. In fact, 62 times Isaiah writes about God's holiness. 25 times he refers to God specifically as the Holy One of Israel. For Isaiah, throughout the Old Testament, the defining characteristic of God is his holiness. And that's exactly what was in Peter's mind when he calls Jesus the Holy One of God. Peter is saying he's gone on this journey that John wants us to go to. Back to the beginning of the purpose. Hey, I have believed. He even says, we have come to know and to believe. What? In who? Jesus. That he is God, that he is sovereign. And since we have done that, what have we received? Life. You have the words of life. That's the confession that Peter made. What Jesus does? Jesus says, bingo, you got it. But let me tell you how I know that. Or let me tell you how you know that. Because of me. It's because of me. And listen, I got to tell you, if nothing so far has been challenging, if nothing so far has been a little offensive, buckle up. Here we go. Let's say it's you, or let's say it's me, who was Peter. And man, thousands are leaving, the mob's leaving, and Jesus turns to you, kind of a challenging question. What about you? Are you going to leave? And man, you nail it. I mean, right answer. What's supposed to come next? Maybe a little pause little pat on the back. This is what I'm thinking. Wow, Peter, you are so smart. You're so spiritual. You get it. Unlike those other imbeciles that are leaving, they don't get it, but you do. You get it. That's not what Jesus does. Right after the confession, immediately when we'd expect it, pause, Jesus says, I chose you. You know that, right? I chose you. You didn't do this. I did this. The me monster would never say that on its own. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. I did this. You know, this is challenging for me. You know, it, it's almost as if Jesus can, can sense just this, man, this little, little bit of pride rising up in Peter. That will you, I have come to know. I mean, I can't speak for the other yahoos out there, Jesus, but I believe, right? Jesus just he snuffs out the, any last remaining ember of pride. He, he won't even allow even a whisper of our human pretension. He just snuffs it out. Can't the flesh count for just a little bit? No. You didn't do this. I did this in you. So he says in verse 65, this is why I said, no one can come to the Father and come to me unless the Father grants it. This is spirit-empowered stuff here. He even emphasizes in the last two verses, in verse 70 and 71, and even you can back up, he, he alludes to it in verse 65. 
that he is complete in control. He talks about his foreknowledge. He says, listen, I know who's mine and who isn't. And so when the crowd leaves, I'm not disappointed. I'm not surprised. I'm not frustrated. Things are not out of control for me. In fact, from Jesus' perspective, he hasn't lost anyone. Not one. And he even goes on to say, even those of you who remain, there is one of you who will betray me, but he's not in control. I'm not surprised. I know all of you are, but I'm not. He's saying, even when it looks like evil is winning, even when it looks like the crowds are leaving, I'm still the son of man who will ascend back to where I come from. I'm still completely sovereign and have complete authority. Does any of that sound harsh yet? Any of that sound hard to accept? It was for me this week, and I found myself over and over again asking, this is true, but why can't you just like mention that for a verse and move on? Why is this here? If, if this is all here so that we can believe in Jesus and have life, how does that work with a teaching that may be difficult or hard? I think there's a few things Jesus is trying to teach us. The first is this, follow Jesus for who he is, not for what he does. Follow Jesus for who he is, not what he does. We talked about this. They were disciples. They were following. But as long as Jesus delivered, and this is what you and I can do so easily. We turn Jesus into a little bit of a business partner. Where I'm willing to invest in you as long as there's a return. As long as it's a good deal for me and as long as you hold to your end of the bargain. And so that bargain, I don't know what bargain you have with God. I have my own bargains I try to make with God. And so, yeah, I'm with God as long as he helps my family, as, as long as he helps me be a better me, as long as, as long as we both agree that this bad thing will never happen. Right, God? We're on the same page. I follow you. I do the things. And you make sure this never happens. That's our bargain. You follow him long enough, he will eventually disappoint you if you are just after his stuff. And listen, God, I think, here's one of the reasons this is hard. I think all of us initially come to Jesus on these terms. Why? Well, it's because we are hungry and he promises to feed us, right? He is a provider. He can help your family. He can bring you joy. He can help you manage your finances. He can help you in your relationships. He can give you abundant life. He is a provider in many, many ways. But I think this is how it works. You may initially come to him in that way, but you will not keep following him unless you move beyond the benefits the person. I'll say it this way. You may come for the provision, but you won't only stay for the person. And you know, that's the only way to explain people like Paul. How do you explain Paul, who can endure loss of reputation, loss of career, imprisonment over and over and over again, beaten almost to death, and yet in the midst of that can say, I count it all rubbish. I count it all loss. If I can get wealthier, if I can get happier, not what he said, right? All loss if I can get him. I'm in it for him. That's how Peter can say, that's how he can remain amidst this abrasive teaching, amidst the crowds leaving. You have life. I'm here for you, not just for what you can do. I'm convinced that so often this is why Jesus brings hard times and hard teaching. Because he wants to be our God, not our vending machine. When following him is hard, determined to follow him for who he is, 
not just what he does for you. The second thing is this. When God is killing your flesh, look for new life. When he is killing your flesh, look for new life. Why is Jesus so being, being so harsh? Why is he being so unrelenting? You may ask, why is a doctor so harsh with cancer? Remember John 3.16. He's here to offer you life. That's what he is after. But our old flesh, our old sin patterns are like a cancer. And left alone, y'all, they will kill us. And so he has to go cut it out sometime so that you can live. You know, there's a pattern in the Bible. There's the same pattern for everyone that leads to new life. And it's this. First comes death, then comes new life. That's a pattern for Jesus. He's up here talking about his ascension. Man, how amazing. Well, what came before the, the ascension? He was crucified, dead, buried for three days. And then came new life. And he invites us to follow in that same pattern. Romans 6. There's a hundred verses you could go to in the New Testament to talk about this. But let's listen to, I'll, I'll read quickly, Romans 6, 4 and 11. It says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into what? Into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says there's new life in the Spirit, but to get there, there has to be a death to our me monster. And we follow in the same pattern that Jesus followed in. And so, you know what? Because God loves you and wants to offer you new life, He will sometimes attack your flesh. He will. I know for me, the times I've been angriest with God, in retrospect, I can see was when he was dealing with my most closely guarded idols. It was when he was the biggest threat to the me monster in here. That's when I've been the angriest at him. And so you, you, we get offended in the way you may picture a tumor being offended at the surgeon who's there to destroy it, cut it out, and kill it. So when you reach those times in your life, man, it feels like, it feels, it is hard. It feels like death. Ask, what in me needs to be taken out? What has been competing with Jesus for supremacy in my heart? And so I'll just give you an example. Let's say you are a total failure at work. I mean, just totally botch it up more than anyone ever has. I mean, they're going to be talking about what you did for years after you're gone. Like, man, listen, one time this guy, and so whatever happens, you get fired, you leave in shame and embarrassment. Y'all, that process would be hard for anyone. It would feel like death for anyone. But maybe, maybe through that hard process, God is freeing you from your job's ability to determine your worth, from your job's ability to tell you that you're happy and you matter. And so through this process, you, you figure out that that job was promising you life and it cannot in the end deliver. And so in the midst of that, here's something you can do. You can look to him for how he may be offering you new life. And when you look to him, you know what you'll see? Man, I was failing in my relationship with him way more than I've ever failed at any job. And how did he react to that? He fired me. He sacrificed his life for me. He loved me more than anyone ever has. And that's life. And so guess what? Next time you get a job, it's just a job. It is not a God in your life anymore. 
you have been set free from something that enslaved you. Don't you see? Through that difficult time, God killed something in me that was enslaving me in order to give me true life in Him. So when you see, you feel like God is killing your flesh, look to Him for new life. Last one is this. When it looks like you're losing, trust that He is winning. When it looks like you are losing, trust that He is winning. Have you asked yourself, why does Jesus bring up Judas twice? All I did was read 11 verses to you, and he finds a way to mention Judas twice. And it's only chapter 6. We got a lot of time before that's all going to go down. It's like Jesus went and found the wettest blanket he could find to throw on the fire. Why is he bringing that up? You know, as, as hard as some of his teaching may be, I think for the disciples, maybe there was some comfort in his words. And I've, I've struggled this week on what this looks like and, and how to say it, but I think I would say it like this. In the hardest times of your life, when your life looks like it is most spinning out of control, in that moment, the clearest picture you can get of God's sovereignty, it can be like a drink of fresh water in the middle of a desert. Think about it. Jesus is bringing up the two times will most look like to the disciples they are losing. This time when thousands are leaving, but there's a time coming soon when one of them will betray Jesus. They will watch who they thought was God and Messiah. They will watch him be crucified, dead, and buried. And even though just one of them betrayed him, the rest of them denied even knowing him in his moment of deepest need. You know what this is? This is a Saturday truth. For yesterday was Friday, and we watched all of our hopes dash, and it feels like we're losing. Listen. Sunday, he was going to raise again. He was going to ascend back to where he was before, but they didn't know that on Saturday. They didn't know that yet. Listen, here, everybody's leaving him in droves. They they didn't know we would be here one day. On those 11 people, God began to build his kingdom, his church that spread to the ends of the earth. We're all here, not because of the thousands, but because of the 11. But they didn't know that then. And so then it just looks like They're losing. But Jesus says, I'm winning. I am winning. This is all part of my plan. So I think one of the reasons this is here, so when when sorrow, sickness, challenges fill our life, when our life feels totally out of control, we can get the clearest picture possible of God's sovereignty. sovereignty. We can trust no matter what, no matter how it looks right now, He is winning, even if I am losing. And what does winning look like for him? Let's go back to where we started. Back to the purpose, not just of the whole book, back to the purpose of these words, so that you can believe in him and have eternal life. He is working so that people can receive life from him. And y'all, this is a work that neither the crowds, nor Judas, nor angels, nor demons, nor principalities, not even death itself could stop this purpose. So I'd encourage you this morning, when when you're angry at God, and you will be, when you don't understand God, and at times you won't, when you think he isn't being fair, and I promise, follow him for any period of time, and you will think that. Here's my plea today, don't bail. Don't leave like the 12,000. Stay like the 12. Let the surgeon do his work in you. 
Follow Jesus for who he is. Look to him for new life and trust that he is winning. Let's pray this morning. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.